0: From around 300 AD, named Methodius of Olympus, who told this story. He says Imagine a highly skilled sculptor who cast a beautiful statue out of gold with perfect proportions and with flawless features. Now, this gold statue turned out exactly as the artist had imagined. It was a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece that reflected his incredible skill and creativity. Now suppose this artist woke one day to find that his masterpiece had been defaced by some envious person who could not stand its perfection and and so decided to ruin this sculpture just for the sake of satisfying his jealousy. This evil criminal came in the middle of the night and marred this pure gold statue, scratching it, denting it, pouring corrosive chemicals on it until it was unrecognizable. Now, what is this artist to do about his statue? He loves this masterpiece. It was a reflection of himself. What if he did nothing? What if he just left this ruined statue to continue corroding forever? It would be an absolute tragedy. But uh, let me ask a different question. What if this artist decided to remake this masterpiece and remove every flaw and every scratch and every dent and every impurity. In order to do this, this artist would need to melt down this gold statue to purify it. He would need to recast it, the material that he had used, into a new and greater sculpture to allow this masterpiece to return to its former perfection and once again put on the display of the glory of this artist See, friends, Methodius used this illustration to show why the resurrection is so important. You see, let me put it in different terms. God sculpted us in his image. He has made humanity, and when he made humanity, he called it very good. But God's masterpiece has been marred. Satan could not stand for God's creation. And maybe a good way of saying it is that Satan's temptation caused us to mar ourselves when we sinned. But what if God just left us marred and dented and corroded? What kind of a a hopeless existence would it be to be left to rot or to try and fix our own problems? You see, friends, there's something we're going to look at this morning is that we can't fix ourselves. The statue uh, could not remake itself and return itself to its form of perfection. The artist needs to remake it. He needs to refashion us. He needs to purify us and make us whole again. Because this is the important things we're going to talk about today. Is that God made you. He made each and every one of you. And sin has cursed you. Our sin has cursed us. But God doesn't want to throw you away. He wants to remake you. And this means that there's real hope because the reality of the resurrection that we're going to talk about today is the center of that hope. And it restores the goodness of God's creation and ensures that the glory of the creator is on display again. And so today what we're going to be focusing on is the importance of the resurrection. Because it's the resolution to the story of salvation. So when we look at the, what the gospel is, the gospel is a story of what God has done throughout history. And without the resurrection, it would be a story with no ending. It would be a story with no resolution. It would be like the, a, a book with the last few pages ripped out if we didn't have a resurrection. It'd be like a saga with no victory, a drama with no happy ending, or a problem with no solution, or a statue that has been defaced that is left to rot. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the classic passage on the resurrection. So grab a Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. What we're going to do is we're going to look at one of these... The the most important text, maybe, in the Bible, telling us about the importance of the resurrection. And here, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Okay, there's a city called Corinth, and he's writing to the Corinthian Christians, where in the churches in this city, apparently some people believed that it's impossible for the dead to rise. And just like today, if you look around the world around us, there were people in Corinth who denied that it's physically possible to have a resurrection. And so Paul wants to talk about why it is so central. So here's the truth that he wants us to grasp today. The resurrection of Jesus is the key that unlocks the future hope of heaven. The resurrection of Jesus is the key that unlocks the future hope of heaven. So let's read our text today. As we look at this passage, this is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 26. We're going to see two different parts here. So let me read the entire text. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise Christ, or he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either." And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and your, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. And he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We'll end there. This is the word of the Lord. Now, again, we're going to look at this in two parts. So you might have noticed there's a pretty marked shift in the middle of the passage. Verse 20 Begins a totally different thought. It's saying, but Christ has been indeed raised from the dead. So that's going to be the dividing marker in this passage. So what we're going to do is look at the first part, which is verses 12 to 19. And and what Paul is showing us is that if there is no resurrection, then everything is hopeless. If there's no resurrection, everything is hopeless. So let me give you a little bit more background here of what's happening. There were apparently some teachers in Corinth in the house churches, who were telling people that it's impossible for there to be a resurrection in the future for us. And Paul just says very plainly that you can't say that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus on one hand, and that there's no possible resurrection for those who belong to Jesus on the other hand. If one is possible, then the other must be possible. And so let's just cut to the chase here because as he goes through the argument in verses 12 to to 19, we could get into the nitty-gritty of that, but what he wants us to see is is that there are consequences when you don't believe that resurrection is possible. And this is what I want us to focus on. He says that without the resurrection, there's no hope for the living or the dead. So here's the consequences, and you'll see that there's two different groups here. So for the living, look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, so why would your faith be futile without the resurrection? Okay, go back to this illustration we talked about at the opening here of the sculpture. The story of redemption isn't complete until the artist in this illustration actually melts down the gold and remakes it into a new statue. It isn't enough to have pity on the statue. It's not enough to tell the statue that everything's going to be okay. It's not enough to go to the statue and give the statue a self-help book. Right? There's nothing that statue could do. And so the statue is still scratched, still dented, still corroded. So in other words, the good news of the gospel isn't good enough if there isn't a final conquering of death and a resurrection to new life. Because death cannot continue to reign. This would not be good news if death continued to reign. You see, the story of what God is doing in salvation needs a, a, a resolution. It needs to, to see something be remade and refashioned and purified. So, without the conquering of death, sin is not fully dealt with either. And this is why Paul says, Your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. You see, without a resurrection, Sin still reigns if death still reigns. You see, death cannot continue to reign. Sin cannot continue to reign. See, without a resurrection, then Jesus didn't actually achieve victory over sin, death, and evil. He would still be dead and we would be without any hope, stuck in our sin. And that would be a hopeless existence. So Paul's trying to make it very vivid to say, if you want to understand what the gospel is, you cannot eliminate the resurrection. Now, that's the, uh, the issue for those of us who are living. Our faith would be futile. Our, our, our sins would still be rampant if there was no resurrection of Christ. Now, for the dead, look at the very next section here. The next verse, verse 18 says that then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So the consequence for those who are dead is that they're gone forever. That we would never see them again. That they would be without any hope. Now, let me put this a little bit of perspective as we look at what this means. If you want to talk about the perspective for the world we're living in today, I think people around us, and I think many of us understand this, that people around us know at a heart level that there's something wrong with our world and something wrong with us as people. You crack open the newspaper, you get online, and you will see people understanding at a deep level, whether they put it into, good, into words or not, that there is something wrong with this world and wrong with us. You see, this world is full of suffering, friends. Whether that be physical suffering which happens in every corner of the globe. Warring nations, places of poverty, even our own backyards, people are suffering physically in this world. And you know what? People are also suffering emotionally. It's becoming more and more clear in our societies, we begin to become aware of the loneliness and depression and hatred and disappointment and abuse and anger and violence and pain that touches every single one of us. See, there's a desire in the world around us to solve these problems. To end violence, alleviate suffering, to find a way to bring peace, to to have some purpose and meaning in life and to be loved. But you know what? People do. Many around us will pursue political agendas to to achieve that. They'll make lifestyle choices that they think are going to satisfy They'll seek out therapy or self-help or, or, or self-discovery in order to try and find some meaning and purpose. But you know what? Here's the point. Our world, our culture, the world around us wants the kingdom without the king. Can I just put it in as plain a terms as I can? Our hearts long for the kingdom of God, friends. And the world around us wants all of the benefits of the kingdom, but they don't want the king. But you can't have the kingdom without the king. You see, there's a deep desire in the hearts of people for the reality of the kingdom of God. Okay, let me put it another way. Our world wants progress without presence. They want progress without the presence of God. We, all, we want all of the goodness of the kingdom of God to be achieved. But people around us do not understand, and many of us maybe struggle with this, that we don't realize that the only way to the goodness of the kingdom of God is to have the presence of God. And this is exactly why the resurrection is central to everything we believe. Because without the resurrected Christ, there is no king for the kingdom. Without the resurrected Christ, there is no presence of God to be the agent of redemption and the artist to remake the creation. You see, the resurrection is key because it puts the King Jesus, it puts King Jesus on the throne, and it ensures that God's plan for salvation will be accomplished in the end. That death is defeated. See, without the resurrection, there really is no hope. So this is where we get to the part of the passage here where Paul describes how we have hope because of the resurrection. So look at the second half here, verses 20 to 26. This is where Paul teaches us that that there is a resurrection and that Jesus' resurrection ensures that there is hope. So often in the Bible... There are super important words that can sometimes be very subtle. The beginning of verse 20 is one of those instances. The word but. The word but at the beginning of that sentence. And the way that Paul uses it, but Christ, often in the Bible, it says, but God, I can tell you right now that if you want to summarize after Paul sets up for the first 15 chapters of what's going on in Corinth, and he describes how we need Jesus to save us, two words summarize the entire gospel, but God, we are lost in our sin. Unable to to remake ourselves and to do anything about it. But God. See, Paul uses this so powerfully. He says, if there is no resurrection, then everything is pointless and hopeless. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Can I get an amen? amen? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, you see, Jesus' death and resurrection mean that you're not stuck in your sin and death anymore. Everything is not hopeless. Those two words mean everything but Christ. You see, because of Jesus, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. Because Jesus was strung up naked on a cross for the shame of your sin. You don't have to be in agony over the weight of your sin because Jesus was in agony for you. You don't have to feel the weight of the curse of death anymore because Jesus died for you and he rose again from the grave and conquered death. You see, Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come for all of us. Now, we have to think like farmers when we hear that word. If any of you are driving around, out in the countryside in September in southern Minnesota, you'll see the beans starting to turn. You see the corn ripening. Okay? If you think like a farmer, the first fruit is that first bundle of grain that you harvest, that first tomato that you pick, that first apple that comes off the tree. And if you've ever gardened or farmed, that is one of the most exciting moments there is because you put all this work into planting seeds, watering them, tending your garden, picking weeds, doing all of this hard work to grow a harvest. And when you see the first fruits, it's exciting because it is a sign or a signal of the harvest that is to come. And this is the image Paul wants us to have, that Jesus' resurrection is not a standalone event. It is the first ripe fruit Of a harvest to come at the resurrection, at the end. See, I love how Paul uses the language here of falling asleep. Did you notice that? That Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is actually a word in Greek to say died. But he doesn't use that word. He uses a metaphor on purpose. Because if you believe that this life isn't all that there is. And that when you die, that this isn't the end. Then it makes sense to say, these are just friends and family who have fallen asleep. Because you know what? I love this metaphor because they're going to awaken again. They will wake up to new life in the new heavens and new earth with a new body. In the presence of God. Now, why does Paul talk about Adam, here. If you go down through the next few verses, verses 21 to 23, Paul talks about Adam. So let me actually read them again. Verse 21 says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Okay, so here's what we need to understand about this. Adam was made in God's image to cultivate and to protect God's creation. We've talked about this in some other instances, but if you look at the language of Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God's command to Adam is to cultivate or to work the garden and to protect it or guard it. And so we are cultivators and we are protectors of God's earth. He asked us to rule it and subdue it and and, and to, to, to administer his creation. To be his representatives on earth. But when Adam sinned, he brought the curse on humanity and also creation. Because that's what he was responsible for. So in other words, as goes Adam, so goes creation. But here's what happens at the cross. Jesus took on human flesh so he could accomplish the redemption and restoration of our flesh, our humanity, and indeed all of creation because he is the obedient son. His sinless life and his substitutionary death put him in the place of the perfect Adam. Adam messed up. Jesus is The perfect Adam. He fulfills everything that humanity was created to be and created to do. And his resurrection confirms it. That's what Paul wants us to see. That his resurrection confirms the fact that he is now the pioneer of our salvation. As Hebrews 2 says. You see, last week I said this in our sermon. Last week. I said something to the effect of you weren't made for this world. You were made for heaven. Which is true, but let me modify this a little bit. You were absolutely made for this world. But this world is cursed by sin and you are cursed by sin. And heaven is a recreating of God's creation. And just like the Garden of Eden, God's presence is there. We will live in harmony with each other and with God's creation. And we will administer God's creation the way that we should by being cultivators and protectors of God's earth. And so you were made for this material world, but God needs to refashion and purify it. You see, the resurrection is the confirmation that we were made for a perfect creation. We were made to finally fulfill that mandate to be stewards of God's creation. But in order for this reality to, to pass, and let me, let me get down here towards the, the bottom of our text... In order for this reality to come to pass, Jesus has to subdue his enemies. He needs to make everything right again. Everything needs to be as it should be. His enemies need to be destroyed. And so look at what verses 24 to 25 say. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is talking about Jesus. Now, what what is dominion and authority and power? It's common words that Paul uses in other parts of the New Testament to talk about evil, to talk about evil forces that are aligned against God. Whether it be nations or leaders or individual people or or demons or Satan himself, anyone who is authority or power that is against God has rebelled against his authority, attempted to destroy God's creation. And so for, in order for everything to be made right again. For God to purify his creation. All evil must be brought to justice. And in fact all sin and evil and death must be placed under the feet of Jesus. A sign of authority over them. A sign of, of destroying and conquering them. And then verse 26 ends our text. The last enemy... To be destroyed is death. Let me just ask you a question. Why is death an enemy? What does that mean? Friends, you were made for life, not death. Death feels wrong. It feels like it shouldn't be this way, right? I think we all feel that in some level. We feel the reality. Of that death being wrong when we try and process, for example, what it means to get older. Many of us look back, and if you think about your life, if you look back on your experiences, many of us have a lot of pain, regret, disappointment, and loneliness. As time marches on, we can feel the weight of life closing in. Pressing down with a burden that sometimes can be too great to bear. The fact that we can't change the past, the pain in the present that we feel, the fear of the future can sometimes be crushing. We get overwhelmed by the constriction of time, by the realization of our powerlessness and our pain and the clock that's ticking. See, friends, the heartache and the fear and regret that comes from the passage of time and the nearing of death gives us a window in our hearts to why death is an enemy. Death is not from God. It's the enemy of life. Death makes life finite. It compresses life into a box. Death brings a weight and a burden That isn't the way we are designed to be. But let me level with you here. Death is the last enemy because it is the embodiment of everything that is against God. It's a it's the reality of sin made visible. It's the fruit of the curse made known. It's the fleshly effect of evil. It's something tangible that we see and we grasp and we witness that is a, a pointer to how, how 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 sin has marred what God has made. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and defeat death once and for all, then I'll tell you what, everything is hopeless. But Christ, friends, He did rise from the dead. Praise God. And we must find our hope in that reality that we too will be resurrected. So let me tell you a story. Yesterday, uh, Sarah and I had a chance to visit with her cousin Rachel and her husband David and their family in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Spent the afternoon and dinner with them. And a number of years ago, David was a lineman working for uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company on high voltage power lines. Out in California. And he's first few years of his career doing this, and one day he was on the job and was climbing a 60 foot telephone or a, a power pole and was electrocuted and fell to the ground. David sustained massive brain injuries and was in a coma for a number of weeks. He has back injuries and An unbelievable list of medical problems and issues. Little did they know at that moment that Rachel was pregnant. She didn't even know. A few weeks later, she finds out that they're pregnant with their first child while he's in a coma. You see, David barely survived his accident. He's permanently disabled, and he's going to battle the effects of significant brain injury for the rest of his life. He can't walk. He's in a wheelchair. He can, he can barely talk. I mean, he, he, he does, but it's difficult to understand. Rachel, his wife, has stuck by his side in every way. I am so impressed and, and, and grateful for her sacrificial love for him. She's loved him in ways that I can hardly imagine walking through these last years. And friends, uh, I think the Lord brought our family to visit them yesterday because today we're talking about the resurrection. And I had a conversation with him yesterday. We're standing outside an ice cream shop. And I said to him, you know, I've been preaching about heaven and the more I look forward to it. And he looked at me and said, one word at a time, in heaven, I will have a new body. Friends, the resurrection is tangible to David. Because of the years of life that he has going forward in this decaying, cursed body, he will never get back. And without the resurrection, how hopeless. How hopeless and how tragic it would be to look at your life and say, this is all that there is. See, Rachel and David are some of the most faithful and hopeful Christians that I know. David especially. See, the resurrection means to David wholeness and health. It means a new body. You know what? The resurrection is the full and proper and good resolution to the story of David's life. It's the good news for David. Because as he looks ahead to heaven, the gospel is truly good news. Because one day... One day, this man who is bound to a wheelchair will stand in the presence of Jesus with a new body. His new body made new for the glory of God. So let me close with a plea. I want us to be a church that longs for the resurrection. That understands the importance of the resurrection that when we struggle with the fear of death or when we we think maybe we don't need it because we're, we're doing fine just as we are, that we cut to the heart of the importance of the resurrection, that it is central to everything we believe. It is the hope we hope in every single day that we look ahead to being restored and remade and recast, to be God's masterpiece, to be his agent's Of cultivating and protecting his new earth. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the resurrection. We long for the resurrection because when we sit and think about it, we know that the power of death, the presence of sin, needs to be done away with that, 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 that Jesus you need to reign that death cannot reign that there is, there is no hope if you do not accomplish that Lord Jesus and so by your resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago we see that as the first fruit the first ripe fruit of the resurrection that we look forward to that God no matter what happens in this life no matter what suffering we experience no matter what pain we know That we look ahead to a day when we will be made new. Created anew to be in your presence and for your glory. We love you, God. Thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.